Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Derek here. Today's episode is going to be about Flannel Brian. Really looking forward to it. But before we go on, I just want to say for those of our listeners who are living in the Republic of Ireland, please do make sure that you are registered to vote in the upcoming referendum. You have until May the 8th to register if you are not currently on the register. It only takes a minute. Visit checktheregister.ie. Give it a go. If your name has a father or a apostrophe in it, just check it with and without it if it doesn't go first time. And now, the show. From Headstuff Studios in Dublin, welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I'm Dark O'Shea. I'm joined today by Shuan. Shuan's back. Hello. How are you getting on, Shuan? I'm very well. How are you? I am doing okay. Good. Who is your favourite writer stroke civil servant, apart from me? Uh, Flan O'Brien. For very many reasons, and not because of his civil service status, <laughs> probably. <laughs> yes, indeed. Flan O'Brien, I, I think I'm sure most of our, our listeners will be familiar with him in one or the other of his three names. Mm-hmm. Brian O'Nolan, the name that was that the priest poured water on. Mm-hmm. Miles Nagopoli, the name that he used for his Irish language work and for some of his journalism. And Flan O'Brien, which he used for mostly for his novels. Mm. He actually used hundreds of names, I think, over the columns and in letters to the Irish Times. And in fact, a new book has just come out last week on Flan O'Brien's letters, oh. which is a huge book. I didn't think it'd be so big. It looks amazing by um, a lecturer called Maeve Long. And I've just gotten a copy. So it looks really great. I'd be really eager to see that. Mm. One of the things that really interested me and obviously um, Flan is a writer I relate to in a lot of ways is he got his big break or part of his big break with his journalism, certainly from effectively writing smart alecky letters to the editor who was uh, Bertie Smiley at the time of the Irish Times. And with this, let the letters to the editor page would have been the Twitter feed of its time, and his work was so good, was so and got such a great response that it led to him getting a getting starting a writing career. Yeah, it was basically UGC user generated content. He started to write so much um, that they couldn't keep him out of the paper, and mm-hmm. people had started, as you say, it was like Twitter. People had started to follow his correspondence in the paper. Um, so much so that he began to write forward and back to himself under different pen names and nobody was ever sure which ones were Flann O'Brien and which ones weren't because there were so many names and he seemed to agree and disagree with himself 
um, from one end of the day to the next. So eventually Bertie Smiley just said, look, we'll give him a call him. <laughs> and that column was called? Krushkin Lawn and spelled phonetically, so not spelled um, as it would be Oscarige, but Osberla. Mm. And that's something that Flann O'Brien did a lot of was he used Irish. Irish was his, his um, first language, but he used to speak or write in Irish but used the English alphabet and, you know, it was kind of a, a, a dig at the Jackins in Dublin who mm. were, you know, romanticising the West and becoming more Gaelic by the day. And I think as a native speaker it was something he became really frustrated with, mm. that maybe the Gael um, was misunderstood or this over romanticization as I say, just really started to grate on him. So it's something that he really pushed against. And he was a real outsider, and obviously because he was born in the actual in what would, what became in the north of Ireland, yeah, in Strabane, County Tyrone, Strabane. and this wasn't one of the designated Gaeltacht areas no, yeah. when the designated Gaeltacht areas happened, and so that he was aware there was this Gaeltacht cult, but that he wasn't a part of those Gaeltachts, but he wasn't a part of Dublin either. Yeah, I think that's something that we can really see throughout all his work as well. Is there's a little bit of um, a missing when it comes to the sense of belonging and you can see that it's something that he eventually enjoys and celebrates in his writing that he can hop between both and that he can take the piss out of both basically Mm -hmm. English speakers and Irish speakers but I think it has to have had something to do with being brought up as his first language being Irish but also not being brought up in the place where as you say that's where the Gaeltacht was put on maps whether that was right or wrong at the time um, I think he felt like a little bit disjointed and he didn't spend his whole life in Tyrone either he came to Dublin and his dad died when he was pretty young and uh, he eventually got the job in the civil servants because there were 10 younger siblings than him and one older sibling and he became the breadwinner that's right. And I mean, he came to Dublin as a secondary school student on a scholarship to Blackrock mm. when the man who had become Archbishop McQuaid was headmaster. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he didn't have a great effect, I might say. I think um, it may have given him a view of authority figures. But <laughs> but um, I think certainly he probably didn't see himself as ending up in the civil service. No. Mm-hmm. No, I'd say had the dream been realised, he would have been a full-time writer and maybe been like other writers of his era and moved abroad and been able to write more freely. Because remember, the time that he was writing was a time of censorship and a time of conservatism in Ireland. And it was something that he really rallied against. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, um, there wasn't a whole lot he could do about it. He really pushed the boundaries with things. And in fact, at one point he did say that any good writer worth his salt had at least one book banned. Mm-hmm. Um, sadly, he didn't make it onto that list. But uh, mm-hmm. he did enjoy somebody who really rebelled against authority. And that's something we see not only in the content of the books, but even the way he writes and in the columns as well. He doesn't even stick to one narrative. Yeah. At Swim starts with three different openings. Um, he plays around with phonetics, as I said. Um, the letters page has moved from one, or his correspondence in the Irish Times didn't even stay on one page. It often began on one page and ended on another. He would try and push the boundaries when it came to narrative and style as well. So mm-hmm. I think authority was something that he really played around with. Yeah. And thinking of his relationship with authority, I think something we've we've spoken about before is someone had said that in whenever there's a political scandal in England, they typically say it's just out of Orwell. Mm-hmm. But or a political story like that in Ireland typically is, is just out of Flannery Bryan or just mm-hmm. out of Miles Nagopoulin. And it shows that uh, kind of in some ways they are they are opposite figures, but they've um, it does show that the, the actual attitude to authority in, or our great one of our great anti-authoritarian writers had this mm-hmm. to absurdist take rather than a kind of rather than the extremely 
I guess, uh, on the nose kind of, and, and Orwell's such a tidy writer, such like a writer who, who doesn't like any big words when they can be put down. And yeah. yeah, absurd kind of, is, is something that Flan really excelled at. Yeah. I think he did it so much so that he began to show Ireland a version of itself that it didn't necessarily see before. And the, mm. some of the audience really disliked what he was writing because it was uncomfortable. Yeah. And some people absolutely loved it and became loyal followers, especially of the column. And again, thinking of how he would have acted in the Twitter age, one of the regular features in his column, and his, there are regular kind of sub-features in them, and it's, if you're too scared to read Assume Two Birds and maybe you don't want to go straight in there, I would really recommend the best of Flannel Bryan journalism. The Cruise King Long Columns is a very accessible way in. Mm. And one of the recurring features in his articles was the plain people of Ireland. <laughs> and this always reminds me of the kind of... Uh, replies you might get on Twitter from people who don't completely get what you're at. Yeah. You want to tell us more about those lads? <laughs> what it really reminds me of the column is Waterford Whispers. Yeah. And on Bailbuch does the same because it's satire, but it's not necessarily even satire in one way. Like it, he literally covered both sides. He would satirise one group of people and then the next day might go against the next. So uh, mm-hmm. like my slant is always I look at the Irish language section. So he really had a, had a go at Gaedigori. Yeah. So those who weren't brought up speaking Irish but learnt Irish and then became very obsessive and became Nis Gaeli and on the Gaeli Thane. But then by the same token, he would also have a go with the people who lived in the Gaeltacht and say that they were living in muck and hmm. pigs and debauchery and all that. So, you know, he covered both angles when it came to, to satire. And I think that's a sign of a good satirist that, you know, you're not necessarily mm. biased, that you can be as horrible <laughs> to both groups as possible. There was bad on both sides, Sean. <laughs> that's the kind of guy yeah. he was, I think. I think that he could be like that sometimes, but I think the, the scale, I think there was a lot of uh, low cunning in the Gaeltacht and a lot of kind of very... Uh, mean-spirited out to, you know, realising that as a small opportunity, like a bunch of uh, Southside Dublin Gilgory arriving to town was an opportunity to make some money fast that might not come again, mm-hmm. which is very different from the um, the lavish pretentiousness of some Gilgory. Yeah. And which, I mean, apparently happens, but I think it's, um, the big thing was he didn't feel he completely belonged to either group and I imagine that his both sides thing never covered, he never considered himself to be on either side. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose that gave him the freedom as well to kick mm-hmm. both sides because I suppose maybe he didn't feel a loyalty, whereas other people feel like they couldn't possibly turn against their own, whereas he fell between the two. Mm-hmm. I think he gave himself the space. Um, I'm not going to say he made many, many friends out of it. No. Um, he wasn't a figure that was, as we imagine, the Irish writer, one of these, you know, performative, I'm so fun, I'll read for you now. Mm-hmm. He was a man who liked going to the pub, all right, but yes. that did not end well. It didn't, and it, it seemed to start before he actually had re- achieved much in writing. Mm-hmm. And his writing career is fairly doomed as well, almost yeah. from the start. A big thing was he he had the very misfortune of publishing his book in a London publisher in 1939. Mm. Yeah, so birds. the war mm-hmm. started and that really affected the book. And then after that, a load of the books got burnt in a fire. Yeah. And... <laughs> like it's kind of funny I have to say mm-hmm. when I think about it my dark humour makes me laugh at him but you know this was his real work of art and yeah. it was absolutely fecked from the start because of those two things of, over which he had no control mm-hmm. Um, and the third policeman wasn't published until after his death he did bring it to a publisher but it was rejected and that's something that he really didn't take very well That's right because this is the 50th anniversary of, the, of his posthumous publication mm-hmm. and 
it is something that I that he wasn't he really wasn't appreciated in, no. in his lifetime at all. And the fact that I imagine in his, his civil service career he was always hoping that he somehow get discovered. I imagine he was and you do detect this in his writing sometimes, really jealous of being able to live abroad and occasionally flashing the German, flashing the French. Yeah. Some of his um some of his work contains trilingual puns. Yeah. Yeah. So some of his work takes work to read it. Yeah. Um it certainly isn't the most accessible at swim and the third policeman. And Belle Bocht actually is really easy to read. Yes. But the English stuff isn't as easy to read. And I think the columns are much easier to read than, than the than the longer texts. But yeah, his his puns are complicated. Some of them. Now other ones are pretty mm. basic and they're kind of slapsticky. Um but yeah, no, he went into complex and went into great detail. In, in when he when he came to to what we call Immortus Fuckle. He had a regular series called Keats and Chapman. Mm. And if you if you were to pick up a copy of uh the best of Flannel Bryan in a bookshop and you, you could go straight to this this section just to give yourself a little taste of what it's like. And there is these two short stories about Keats and Chapman, the poets, which all basically lead up build up to a gargantuanly um, overdriven pun. <laughs> and it's as great as it it's uh it's well, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, some people might find it and, and hard work, but it is great. Yeah, he was a genius. He was a genius, and I think that he could see the um, acknowledgement that people like Joyce and Beckett got, mm-hmm. um, who were around his ear as well, but who escaped Ireland and escaped what he couldn't. Yeah. And I think um, he gives them a good go as well in many of the columns, and it's hard to tell whether it's like. It's not very affectionate. <laughs> no. So I wonder, is it jealousy that they got away and he didn't? And he had to stick with this civil service. It is. And he wouldn't have been conscious of the physical hardships that Joyce put his young family through mm. in the process of, especially writing Finnegan's Wake at that stage. And similarly, the, the the hardships that Beckett would have put himself through in the, in the French resistance mm-hmm. and so forth, because he would have just been thinking about the misery of being unappreciated. Yeah, his um, bailbucht. <laughs> yeah, having to go drinking with uh, Paddy Kavanagh. <laughs> Can you imagine two more mm. miserable men? He <laughs> 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 used to drink in the palace. That was his big one in Dublin. That's right. He was mm. a regular in the palace. Um, but yeah, I, I love his work. And it's something that I always return to. And I think, as you said, Darach, it's um, the columns specifically are something that you can dip in and out of. Mm. And most of what's written in them are still relevant and are still funny. Yeah. And I think that's something that really stands up, you know, to to the test of time. His columns are particularly excellent. Um, his novels really didn't get discovered until much later on. Yeah. And with all the furore about Joyce and Beckett, I think he was another modernist who didn't get added into into the canon until later. I, I suppose there's many reasons why. Um, but I, I, if I were to choose something for a reader to um, begin with, I'd probably pick the columns. Hmm. Something I found when I first discovered Flan in when I was about fifteen or sixteen was that he had been such an influence on. I felt I already knew him because he'd been such an influence in comedy I'd already known. Mm. Specifically, obviously Dave Allen, whose spe- comedy specials we'd seen. His um, Dave Allen's father uh, would have been an assistant editor or a, on the board in the Irish Times when Flan was there, and mm-hmm. that similar kind of um, that very irreverent but kind of over like. A, Officially polite, but fundamentally irreverent humor mm. was definitely. He, he said himself was very flan inspired, mm. and most of all, Terry Wogan had said that his 
Eurovision commentary. The idea of officially commenting on an event but using it uh, to basically talk about completely different things or the idea that someone's been put in charge who really shouldn't be in charge and they're just getting away with it because they're a little posh mm. was very, was very fantastic. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and I think um, we laugh. There's a conference that happens every second year, the um, International Flan O'Brien Conference and when we're there, I've been there twice, we call ourselves the Flanoraks. <laughs> <laughs> There's many a good, a good name to be, to be called. But one thing that really stands out for me is when you do go to these conferences, they're not like other conferences. They're not like Joycean conferences or they're not like mm. conferences on, I don't know, the famine or whatever, <laughs> anything. Yeah. They're fun. And the oh. people who are there often really want to have a laugh in their papers. Now, a few of them are fairly serious stuff as well, but it's certainly more sprinkled with humour than other conferences on literary figures were. And I like that. I, I think that he would have liked that, that don't take yourself too seriously. When do they take place? Um, in the summer. So Ooh. there was one on last year. So I don't think there'll be one on this year. It's every second year. And there are three... Um, lecturers in Austria one of them's in, in in Italy I think who organise it and it's always abroad because I think they didn't want to put it in Ireland because they wanted just a fresh take on Flann O'Brien so course. they got lots of international um, speakers that the first year and they've just continued on it's great One aspect that I really like to talk about is that it's part of his enduring legacy every Irish boy or girl who wants to write a book they tell their parents they want to be a writer their mammy or maybe even their daddy would say, you know, you make sure you get a nice, sensible day job, possibly in the civil service, like Flann O'Brien did. And this might be his enduring legacy in that he has become just like people tell their their daughters, if you want to be an actress, go to college first, like Emma Watson, Natalie Portman did. Yeah. And similarly, if you want to be a writer, you make sure to get a nice, sensible day job, like Flann O'Brien did. Like you, Daryl. <laughs> like me, absolutely. <laughs> and it's a, it's a tough beat for trying to finish a second book while also trying to <laughs> um, work a full-time job and also have a family. But, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you get one shot at life. you got to pack as much stuff in as you can. Yes. But I, what I was thinking was, and we spoke about this in Galway, Kirch, at mm-hmm. the Kirch Festival recently. Do you think the actual the conditions of being a a full-time civil servant affected his writing, would he have been a very different writer if he had been in the Chelsea Hotel in New York or if he had been basically in March smoking cigarettes and sipping coffees? Yeah, I think that whole area of his life moved into his writing. And I don't Mm -hmm. know whether he did it unconsciously or not, but I think there's a frustration. um, And I think, again, we go back to how he writes about other writers. Yeah. He really has a go at them. And Joyce is one of those ones that he had a go at, particularly. And it's funny because apparently At Swim was the last book that James Joyce ever read before he died. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I think Flanna Brown would have got a laugh out of that. But yeah, I think eventually um, at the end of Brown and Nolan's career in the civil service, he was asked to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, at the beginning, I think he was given a little bit of freedom. They they weren't sure at the very start if it was him or not writing in the column and then eventually became a kind of an open secret. Yeah. And his satire became sharper and sharper. And I think he was having a right go at a few politicians. Mm-hmm. And so eventually he was asked to leave. And I don't know whether his drinking problems or whatever had an effect as well. But I think, I don't know if he would have been the same writer. And I think part of the the loveliness in his writing and the absolute mystique of his writing is in the frustration. Yeah. That's but th- then we're divorcing the writer from the person because I feel sorry for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's horrible to be stuck in a job that he probably never wanted. Yeah. 
and trying to, you know, support this family and, mm-hmm. you know, very maybe very unhappy. And we can compare him in some ways to a near contemporary of his who was also a North, uh, Northern Irish from Northern Ireland, from a poor background, who became a civil servant and wrote on the side. And that man was T.K. Whitaker. Mm-hmm. And he would have been even the very much reverse in that he had excelled in a civil service career, kept his writing largely to a hobby, even though it is some very fine poetry. Mm-hmm. It didn't, he, he kept the job first. He did great things. Yeah, and Brian and Nolan took the road less taken there. <laughs> very much so. <laughs> yeah, maybe T.K. Whitaker is the role model rather than, um, I think so. rather than Brian and Nolan. I think Brian and Nolan's the underbelly of T.K. Whitaker. <laughs> But the, that, that's right, yeah, they're, uh, it's like the two sides of the same coin. <laughs> the Jekyll and Hyde of the civil servant. But I do think that fans, the, the restrictions that are put on civil servants as writers, which are effectively that um, you're not allowed to join political parties mm-hmm. and there's, there's a certain cautions need to be taken with addressing political issues that are kind of up for live, live elections and so mm-hmm. forth. But it may have caused them to be subtle in a way that he may not have felt a need, a need to be if he was looking at Ireland o- over his shoulder from yeah. from Barcelona or someplace. And that's in that subtlety, great art lies. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and in as you said earlier, the, the, the trilingual puns, mm-hmm. some of the, the harshest jokes in his books are the best hidden ones. And yeah. unless you knew what he was talking about, I'd say a lot of it we skim over now and we don't really realise. I think some of it, when we look back, we nearly have to read it in parallel with Irish history. Yes. Because the digs are often at contemporaries or what's actually happening in Ireland at the time in 1940 or whatever. I think a lot of it is tied mm. into societal issues. This is especially true of The Brother, the sec- mm. the, the recurring series of which it revolves around to Two men in a bar, one of whom appears to flan, highly well-spoken, sophisticated, very moderate in his views, and another who's a traditional Dublin man who's talking, who, who's in digs with his brother and a number of other characters. And they were, and he recounts the um, the events of the previous week. But a lot of these events refer to things that were in the news at the time. Mm. And while you can still read them, then they, they work without those contemporary references. Obviously, they benefit enormously from those contemporary references. Mm. Yeah, and I think, yeah, the brother is one that I really loved as well, because, again, you can dip in and out of it. And it was one of those mm. characters that he actually kept for a long time. Yeah. Um, And there were a few of those. There were others that flitted in and out and only appeared maybe once. And I know, I can't remember the name of the scholar who was studying it, but they were actually trying to uh, cross-reference all the names, how many times they appeared, mm-hmm. when, why. Yeah. Um, because the naming thing is so important in, in his essence as an author. Mm-hmm. Why did he write as, as Miles Nicopoline when he was a journalist? And why was yeah. he why was he never Brian O'Nolan? This is the thing. And back in the time, it's it's relaxed since. But at the time, if, if you were a civil servant and you wanted to write, and there were a fair few of them, you generally had to use a different name. The idea was that, as understandably so, that say if you were... Uh, maybe sending out a um, sending out a, a letter that was bad news, or or you were comment, or you were putting a position paper that it wouldn't be traceable to your opinions as a, as a writer. Mm-hmm. And we do have there was um, Martin O'Dearine was one of the I presume he may have used his English la- the English language version of his name at work. Yeah, I wonder. I'm not sure. I must look that up. He wouldn't have been as satirical. Mm-hmm. Um, he was more of a poet um, that didn't really go for people the way Brown and Nolan did. Yeah. 
So maybe, I don't know whether, maybe that's another one that we could look at and say, was he a softer writer? For sure. <laughs> because he was a civil servant. And there's definitely a few. I mean, there's, um, there, were, there were a few others and that would have been the practice at the time um, mm. to either use a pen name or to use the English or Irish translation of your name. Just like people do on Facebook when they become teachers now. Yes. What? Uh, it's. I think people. A lot of people assume that I'm a teacher because I have my obviously my it's Irish name. Misuse of the Irish language. <laughs> <laughs> In a way, it's almost almost like a code. But the um, but yes, it's um. But the that still seems to have been relaxed in later years when we had more recent civil service writers like Dennis Driscoll mm-hmm. and Donald Ryan most recently, who is no longer a civil servant. I believe he's a writer in residence in, in Limerick, right? In Limerick now. Yeah, so good on him. More power to him. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's definitely if you read The Spinning Heart, you can definitely see how obviously his inside look in the civil service definitely gave him an insight into that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Donald Ryan, fantastic writer, one oh, of our greatest. he's a great writer. He's mm-hmm. a great writer, yeah. So we'll have to have a quick word on the Irish language, obviously, and Flan. Uh, obviously, the name Flan itself, meaning blood well, or, yeah. or also yeah. a warrior like a, yeah. much like in certain Native American cultures a blood was a warrior mm-hmm. plan and the we haven't mentioned this before in the podcast in the constitution the version when they named the flag the colour is the flag it's Uena Bon Bon August Flan Vui yeah that, instead rather than saying Arashta we couldn't be using Arashta couldn't be saying Arashta in the constitution Flan Vui basically yeah. blood yellow the Bon Derek some colours like Bondarag are a combination of the two colours mm-hmm. that constitute them. And similarly, Flan meaning red, a particular shade of red, and Bui meaning yellow. Mm-hmm. Um, dot make. <laughs> <laughs> dot make, exactly. <laughs> and interestingly enough, I suppose, um, on that theme, the Kirkadurcha, um, which mm-hmm. where, was where the, is the Gaeltacht area where um, on Bell Book the set, that's basically eggplant purple or aubergine purple, because mm-hmm. uh, it's basically dark Kirkha is, is purple and Dorcha is dark. Yeah. That's obviously a reference to Kirkhina yeah. in, in Kerry. Yeah. Beautiful part of the world. Beautiful part of the world and an area in which Flan enjoyed taking the piss out of, especially mm-hmm. within Talonach, um, the island man, the Moss of great work about the last people of the Blasket Island. We'll never see their like again. We will never see their like again. How does he say that in Irish again? Mar nabeg or lehdi rishon, and that must be repeated maybe a hundred times in Unbail book. <laughs> it becomes absolutely hilarious, and it mm. does become absurd very quickly. And I think you never look at Antalonach the same way again after you read Unbail book, and that's something that Unbail book does. Yeah. it actually colours how you read other texts in Irish, uh, and sometimes. I would actually have to say it has coloured my experience of the language because at certain points in my life as a, a what I call a Gaedigar Garamil professional professional Gaedigar, <laughs> um, I'm having the same conversations with people all the time over and over and over again. And I just realise, my God, Flann O'Brien would be laughing about this. Like I am <laughs> living in Unbailed Bucht sometimes trying to tell people that I am really Gaelic and Margot will my Gaelic and I'm even more Gaelic than you are. And this is how we are going to save the language. <laughs> so, you know, it actually has coloured how I look at the world at times, that book. Mm-hmm. And it's it's tiny. It's only maybe 60 pages. I'd say it's one of the most accessible novellas in Irish, mm-hmm. uh, certainly of that scale. And it's definitely a... A good place to start if you are thinking of tipping your toe into reading a whole novel. Yeah. And and TG Gacher showed um, a cartoon version at Christmas this year. That's right. I saw it. It was excellent. Yeah, a short version. And it was a very nice production. It was beautifully produced, yeah. And one of the things, one of the phrases that also pops up in a bell book, 
in relation to the the satirized Gelgori is the phrase Bio Agus Galan mm-hmm. about the Irish language, meaning Bio meaning living and Galan meaning clean. The idea that the Irish must be living but also must be pure. There was a lot of that, yeah. And um again at the time when you look at the the revival, the people who moved into this space of we should become more Gaelic, those who lived on the east looking to the west, they decided they were going to take on this as an aim that we were going to become Gaelic. And mm. to become Gaelic, we actually became, you know, it was kind of like a distilled version of what they wanted. They handpicked mm. bits of the Gaelicus that they wanted. Yeah. You know, this beautiful woman in the West and Roisin as Ireland and all mm. that. Whereas actually when we go back in time and before any of anything happened in Ireland when it was really Gaelic, mm. the rules about being pure and conservative weren't there. Yeah. And in fact, things were a lot freer. We were a much more liberal society. Um, but it's it that's not the part that they wanted. They yeah. wanted, you know, um, we talk about comely maidens and Devalera, that kind of idea mm. that this would bring us a certain sense of self, but that it had to come with this caveat that it had to be very conservative. Exactly, and this is and that's the thing. It was uh, I think it's it's important to put Devalera's uh, dancing at the crossroads speech in the context of other kind of. Um, sharp turns in traditionalism around Europe at the time. Mm-hmm. I often wonder, Sean, you know, I mean, Ireland before World War Two, I mean, back back in the old days, before Vatican II, before all these things, you know, most countries were somewhat conservative in their own way. Mm-hmm. And, and but during World War Two, there was, um, or the emergency, as they called the it. Emergency. The emergency, <laughs> as we call it in Ireland. I'd love to find out who came up with that term. It possibly flan, <laughs> who knows. <laughs> but one of the things I found was that, and this was, Historically, that was a time that lots of women entered the workforce mm-hmm. and that when the war was over, yeah. they didn't fan- necessarily fancy going back. And that's when this was the big myth of the American housewife kind of came down in the 50s when yeah. there was turmoil relating to um, men coming home and finding their role slightly usurped. Mm. But I kind of, part of me wonders how much of um, is our neutrality in World War II responsible for all the misogyny and sexism yeah. that happened afterwards that we didn't have the same feminist um, revolution at the same time. How much, well, I'm rambling here. No, but, but I, think, I think you have a good point. I think before all of that happened and well before all of that happened, mm. the Irish culture and our native culture mm actually held women in a huge regard. Yeah. They were strong. You think of Grania Whale, you think of the, you know, the names that Ireland was. Yeah. And they were like warrior women and they were out and they were going to do this, that and the other. And and same even sexually. There was, even when I go to the Gaeltacht sometimes um, and I talk to people in the Gaeltacht and I'm trying not to other them here. There's a certain mm. freedom in the way they talk about their bodies. Yeah. And the way they talk about sex that really doesn't match the same when I come back east and I talk to people mm. of my own age even there's a certain conservatism yeah and I I think the Irish language hides a lot of I the rawness if you know what I mean I think so a big thing is in English and this is something that's one of the big differences between English and Irish is you have in English you've got an a, a polite word and a rude mm. word for a body part or yeah. a body function, and we know this. Say the and whereas in languages that don't have that a class system uh, built into them, you just mm. have the one word. Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't know. I don't know whether it's because 
they're on the West Coast and they were mm. further away from the pale or whatever it is. I'm not sure. But I do feel like there's a certain wildness yeah. and I love it. And I wish that we could have more of it because I just feel like, oh, God, we're so bloody conservative at times. <laughs> why? <laughs> well, so that's one reason why I love the Irish language. And I think mm. Flan also loved that, that there was a sense of um, more of an earthiness. That's what I'd call it, actually, yeah. rather than, a, than um, wild sexuality. They'd love that mm. back in Kirkuhina. I think they would, but I think Flan may have if we if we if we have only his writings to go on, he may have run a mile from it. Yes, I think there's been a few comments made on Flan O'Brien's sexuality. Um, he married later on in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, he married a woman called Evelyn, and um, I'm not really sure how the marriage went. To be honest, there's mm-hmm. been certain comments made that he thought that he had to get married for tax reasons. I've read that. <laughs> Which is mm. way harsh yeah. on his poor wife. Um, but he didn't He didn't live that long after he got married. And I, he, she certainly doesn't feature in any of his writings. Yeah. And when it comes to women, they're really not there. There's not much love interest. No. Even in, in Bell books, effectively, not unlike the reverse case of the Peg story, um, he gets married and then the next we hear of his wife is that she's dead. Yeah. And there's not much sadness about it. It's like, move on. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of the sexual passages actually is when he describes in great detail um, what a bike looks like. Our producer Brian would love this. <laughs> Brian, do you like bikes? Brian's very keen on cycling. Well, Flann O'Brien loved a good bike and the detail to which he described this this um, bicycle was basically pornographic. <laughs> but all mm. other references to sex mm. are, ba- are basically a mist. They're not there. Yeah, and how much of that is down to the, censor, the mm-hmm. censorship of the time. Bearing in mind now that that film was published in the United Kingdom and so he can't blame can't blame no. De- Dev and Dev and his army of uh, army of rubber stampers for that mm, one. No. But how much, so how much is down to his own choice of what to write about and how much it isn't. But certainly that's if that's the kind of thing you're looking for you won't find it in plan. <laughs> you won't find it here. <laughs> <laughs> Any last thoughts before we wrap up? No, I think it's great that he's finally been acknowledged for the the amazing writing that he did, and um, even recently Maeve Long's books on the letters. Like that's another part that really hasn't been discovered yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I did enjoy when the Irish Times republished a lot of the Crucian Lawn over the last few years, and Frank McNally's really been heading up that in the Irishman's Diary. Yeah. But I think he's one of those people who we will always look back on and think, "Wow, we should have given him some more love when he was around." We should, but the great thing about books is it's never too late. It's never too late. Flann O'Brien is there for you. On that note, Shun, thank you so much for joining us today. Very welcome. Thank you. So, it's a slon for me. And it's a slon more for me. See you next time. Hey gang, Dark here again. Just want to thank you so much for listening today. Hope you enjoyed the show. Our live show, as part of the International Literature Festival, Dublin, is coming on the 24th of May in Smock Alley Theatre. We cannot wait to see you all. It's going to be a very fun night. Jam-packed, lots of surprises. There's still time to book tickets at ilfdublin.com. Motherfucker comes out every Friday on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Please do support our work by liking and sharing podcast itself giving us reviews on apple stitcher wherever you get them and of course tell your friends if you enjoy this do tell your friends 
means a lot, and I think word of mouth is the most powerful way to recommend things. Thanks to Brian for producing today. Thanks to Kirsten Shield for doing the artwork. If you're looking for a new show to listen to, the Headstuff Podcast Network has got some great ones waiting for you. A very topical one at the moment is The Eighth, which deals with topics concerning the current referendum in great depth and with great feeling. It's well worth checking out. And also do consider checking out Juvenalia. It was the first podcast I ever did was as a guest in Juvenalia. And they put on a great show. They just talk about a piece of pop culture that's very important to an interesting person. Give it a go. If you want to contact the show, please contact the Twitter handle Motherfolklore or at the Irish Four or Motherfolklore at headstuff.org if you're old fashioned and you enjoy sending an email. Until the next time, Slam. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. It is binoculars. I L F D dot com. <laughs> I think you're right.